the harshest of operating conditions. Large-scale investment, planning, and commitment places the offshore sector in a league all on its own, where the stories of people aren't found anywhere else. From safety to operations to new technology, we look to break down this often mystified industry and shed light into the unknown. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast with your host, Andy Lash. All right, everybody, welcome to the show. Again, this is the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast. Today, we have Lance Grinley from Tidewater. He is a marine superintendent. The show is brought to you by Tidewater. They are the owner and operator of the largest fleet of offshore support vessels in the industry. With over 60 years of experience supporting offshore energy exploration and production activities worldwide. If you're interested in support for your marine operations, you can learn more about Tidewater through their website at www.tdw.com. Lance, thank you for your time. No problem at all. My pleasure. Where are we talking today? I'm in Texas, West Texas in the USA. And I'm in Aberdeen, Scotland, United Kingdom. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. You are my first international guest. So thank you. That's a pleasure. <laughs> so how about we start with just a little bit about yourself and your background and, and kind of how you got to where you are today. Okay. I was 61 years old, originated from Northern Ireland, lived around the world as my father was in the Royal Air Force. I served in the Royal Fleet Auxiliary for and the Royal Navy for 13 years, joined BP Offshore in 1991, which then became Gulf Offshore, and then Gulf Mark, and now Tidewater Marine. I've got a total of about 40-odd years at sea in many positions, from junior ordinary seaman all the way to a captain. I'm presently the Marine Dynamic Position Superintendent and the designated person ashore for Tidewater Marine. I'm married to Sue. Three children and five grandchildren. <laughs> that's great. Five grandchildren. That's got to be fun. Oh, that uh, keeps me on my toes, definitely. Are grandchildren really better than your own children, like like they say? Yeah, they're great because you can really <laughs> do great things with them, get them into trouble, and then just leave them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to that someday. I got I have two daughters, but uh, no grandchildren yet. So. Well, so you have plenty of experience. You've been doing this a very long time. And you said your your father was... In the maritime field? He was in the Royal Air Force, not the maritime The Royal Air Royal Force. Air Force. Yeah. Okay, okay, that's great. How does your current position with Tidewater, how do you interact with the oil and gas sector? My actual position with the oil and gas sector as the Marine Superintendent for the fleet is to basically maintain the vessels within our fleet to class and to flag state and MLC and all other regulatory authorities, I monitor the safety and the pollution protection aspects of the fleet, review what their requirements are, go on board the vessels and make ship visits. I also conduct internal audits and investigations as required to support the IMS, which is the Integrated Management System. And then as on my other foot, the uh, DPA, the Designated Person Ashore, I provide the link between those on board and the company, and I have uh, direct access to the highest level of management. Oh, that that is a, that is very interesting, and that is quite a role. You you stay busy for sure. Then, yeah, my uh, my wife she's only recently moved up to Aberdeen. She we live down in Weymouth, and uh, 
she has now got a hold on uh, my hours of work and she definitely is the boss. So she doesn't <laughs> let me go in Saturdays and Sundays anymore. <laughs> well, maybe that's a good thing. I know I, I work a lot of late nights and a lot of weekends myself and, and my wife is pushing for the exact same thing. But sometimes you, you get used to working so much, you take a weekend off and it feels like you're just not doing doing what you need to be doing, you know? Well, that's right. You know, the, the work all back, back up. And it's like the company, Tidewater Marine, you know, their, their operation within the North Sea is it's to supply all the rigs in the North Sea with everything from food to fuel. So, you know, it's a non-stop, 24-7, 356 days a year job for those guys out there. And, uh, and they need some support sometimes. Absolutely. How about for your, your position, so Marine Superintendent? I'm learning a lot about the offshore sector as I go through this podcasting process and kind of adventure, right? I'm completely green to offshore. If I were just asked on the street the titles and, and roles within a marine company, you know, I think captain would be one that comes to mind. But that's really just the for the vessel itself correct well my, my title is actually captain lance grindley some people use okay. it some people don't captain is a it's actually an honorary rank issued during the second world war which was from the royal navy to the merchant navy so that they gave the masters in charge of merchant navy vessels a similar rank to the personnel in charge of naval ships so they're always known as masters of a vessel because they hold a master mariner's ticket but they are, it's an honorary word, is captain. But I'm a marine superintendent, so I'm a past captain, if you want to put it, whereas yeah. technical superintendent is normally a past chief engineer. Okay. And I think you referenced dynamic positioning as well. That was something that I learned about on the last podcast. So that, that was extremely interesting on how that works and, and what an integral part it is for the work that you guys do loading you know, materials on and off the ships and everything. Yeah, it's it's made a an absolute massive difference to the way that the offshore industry has developed. When I first started, we, to be honest, and I'm not saying, you know, this is the way we used to do it, I'm an old fuddy-duddy, but <laughs> we, used, we just had a, the levers, that's the control of the two engines, the control of the thrusters and the rudders, and then, then joysticks came in, then advanced joysticks came in and now we're on now we're on dp so and dynamic positioning there's no doubt about it it can make the job quicker and safer as long as you know what you're doing and as long as the vessel is set up correctly and that's really one part of what you're doing going out keeping these vessels up to the credentials they need up to the status i mean just keeping everything ship shape if you will if that's a good term yeah that's right it's a, it's a very old term ship shape <laughs> and bristol fashion yes that's correct basically it's a, to make sure that they pass all the requirements and the laws and the laws and the requirements do not do not get any easier they increase and they they've got new rules and regulations every single year yeah there's a lot on the news about that too which i, I don't know if we want to get into here but i mean i think imo 2020 and the hybridization of, of vessels is is some topics that I plan for future shows. And I know something that's kind of running through the industry, among other things, I'm sure. Yeah, the, the new uh, regulations here about fuel are very are very strict, and there could be a, a big a big play in, in amongst that. However, thankfully, the offshore industry 
complies nearly completely with all of that. So it's hopefully not going to affect our vessels too much. Good. Besides oil and gases, are there other services, other industries that that you would service through Tidewater? Yeah, Tidewater Marine at the moment. The office out of Aberdeen is operating two drilling vessels which are supporting renewable energy sector in exploratory drilling operations, basically in regards to wind farm operations and as such. Okay, yeah. I know that's another huge growing sector with the offshore wind and hasn't really reached America yet. I think there's a little bit on the East Coast, so I, I haven't seen it directly, but... I know in, in a lot of the European countries and, and Asia, that's that's really taken off. So probably a growing sector for you guys, if I would guess. I would say it's going to be massive at one stage. I think the next development, where they're building the, the biggest offshore wind farm down in the southern North Sea, which is going to be, the oh, I think there's something like 250 actually turbines there, which is going to be a massive project. They've been at that for about a year. And I'm sure the next generation you'll have a you'll have a wind turbine, and below it there'll be a water turbine, so that even if the wind's not blowing or it's from the wrong direction or if it's too strong, if you've got a good tidal set, that will give you the power as well. That'll be the next thing. The really big thing will be water. I agree. Yeah, I know that's been that's been something that the industry sector as a whole has been trying to trying to crack for a while, but. Those conditions are so tough. The current has so much strength and so much energy that building something to actually capture that and not fall apart after a few weeks or months has been extremely difficult. So, yeah, they are definitely leading the way in Europe, I think, in regards to the water turbines. There's a massive project just going off the Orkneys where you can get up to eight, 12 knots. And so you can imagine the power of that sort of water turbine and, and these things are really big these are these are really big yeah no that's that's extremely interesting i wanted to do some research on that and and see what i can find out there that anything energy related is is extremely fascinating just for many many different reasons but how the offshore sector interacts with that is is going to be a long adventure for me for some time to come yes i think they're working well towards that i mean a lot of the offshore industries putting potential um amounts of their profit, upwards of 10, 15% of the profits that they make into renewable energies and sourcing out um, how to get energy, which is non-dangerous or detrimental to the environment. Yeah. With that work, are there different vessels or, or different changes to the vessels that you guys operate that need to be done to, to be able to service the turbine installations and some of that work? Well, we're not actually servicing any turbines, but we had a, one of our vessels, the Highland Eagle, which is a 755 supply vessel. Only a year ago got fitted with a drilling platform okay. going through the moon pool. And so that's now adapted. That's actually in the United States, in the Great Lakes, near Detroit, doing a drilling operation to check the subsea service within the lake for a tunnel, I believe. So that's something that's it's not difficult to do, but it's not also easy. It's got to be well-planned. And as long as it's done in the correct manner, that's good. Yeah, no, that's real interesting as well. I, I would have never thought about operations in the Great Lakes. So that, that's cool. A little closer to home for, for me here in America. So very interesting. With your time in the industry and all your experience, is there anything that 
you wish you would have learned earlier on in your career or maybe learned before you got into into the industry? There's lots of lessons that <laughs> I've learned and uh, hindsight is a great thing. But I would say that after conducting many, many interviews for for applicants and also talking to crews on board in a complimentary manner or a or disciplinary manner, there, there's quite a lot to learn about. There's always more than two sides to every story. Everybody has an opinion and it is really is better to listen than to talk. I would say that's the best thing I've learned. I can agree with that. That's that's pretty much my job here in the podcast is just ask a question and then quietly listen to the story be presented. So. <laughs> well, that's that's a great job if you can just sit back. As long as you ask the right questions, you get all the information you need. Absolutely. Absolutely. With all those interviews, with all the 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 people you've seen coming into the industry, what's what's the main thing that you want to tell them from the start? What do they need to be prepared for? If they're coming into the industry, especially starting work on an offshore supply vessel, anchor handler, diving boat in the North Sea, especially in the North Sea where it is it's pretty ferocious and pretty rough during the winter and we're just sort of starting to come on the turn now. I always talk about the sea and I say how oh, it's the most dangerous thing in the world. It really is a very sometimes unforgiving monster that if you're lazy or you're dishonest or if you don't treat it with respect, she will cause you some serious damage. And that's the main thing. You need to treat the sea with respect. And we have technology with weather forecasting and, and radar and, and you know, all these these systems in place, but stuff can still change very quickly, right? I mean Oh, we we have that all the time. One of them one of the greatest things that guys can do is to pre think, pre plan. And better to be safe than sorry is a is a great terminology to be used at sea because you the weather can be benign two or three meters and you think this is great and then you can go to bed as a captain and you wake up at oh I don't know, whatever hour and the ship's rolling and tossing and you're getting chucked around and you get up to the bridge and you find that the the whole situation has changed. It's now blowing a hoodie. There's upwards of five, six meters. And, you know, it just changes like that. It's a really dangerous scenario. And it's a dangerous job out there. And the guys do a really, really good job. And uh, most of the time, nearly 99% of the time, it, they do it very well and very safe. It's just the odd times where if you're just a little bit complacent, it grabs you and that's it. You're down. Yeah. And complacency is no matter what industry, no matter how much training, no matter how much experience you have, it, it always seems to find a way to try to fight its way in there. Certainly. There's, uh, there's no, no substitute for being prepared. Um, that old Boy Scout motto, be prepared, it's, it really is the best motto. What are some of the, the training requirements for a new hire with Tidewater? Like, you know, they come in and, and they're expected to have a certain level of, of experience or can a lot of that be gained on the job? Well, we have a, a cadet procedure. We, we employ upwards of 30 cadets, which are junior junior deck or engineering officers. Shona Riley is the, the lady the superstar in charge of our uh, cadets. And we try and take on, I think it's about 20, between 20 and 30 every year. And these are young guys just out of school. They have the risk with qualifications in maths and science and English and and they go to sea and and hopefully they enjoy it and they they work their way along the cadetship getting gaining the experience and the certification that's required until 
hopefully they they eventually get their first certificate as a second officer and then they sail as a second officer hopefully they do a few trips with us and they're appointed to a vessel and then their career is off and running and the next step is a is a chief officer and then hopefully eventually they can get their master's certificate and that's it we do also take people from outside who who are already qualified but that's an interview process where we sit down and see what sort of history they've got in any in the uh, offshore industry. You said appointed to a vessel. So do you, do you kind of like you get on a vessel and, and you stay there for quite a long time or, or do you move around as business needs dictate? Well, normally once you get on board a vessel, it's your sort of vessel. You're doing a four month or a, sorry, four week or a five week trip and you, you'll stay on that vessel until one, you need a change two you're moved because of some circumstances or your expertise is needed somewhere else or, you go to college, and so therefore your place is taken by somebody else. And then hopefully you get appointed to another ship, and uh, it moves on from there. But normally guys do between a year and maybe upwards of three years on a ship. I always think any more than three years, and you're, you're, you become a little bit complacent and dug in a groove. I always like to see people move on, try new horizons. And every ship's got a different feel, and, and it's, it teaches you different things. And, of course, people teach you different things. So the more people you interact with within the fleet, the more people you know, the more good ideas you see, the more bad ideas you see. So to me, once you've done about two or three years on a ship, best to move on, try some new fields. There's new things going on all the time, different vessels, newer vessels, older vessels, whatever makes your tea bubble. That's my idea. Yeah. It, it seems like a job and in, in an industry where you really you kind of have to have like a love it or hate it kind of thing. Is that is that real? Is is that an honest or an accurate assessment? Yeah, there's definitely there's. You, you've also got to have a family that's willing to accept uh, that yeah. sort of sort of life. You know, my wife's moved up to Aberdeen now. She's semi-retired, but before that, it was deep sea, and then it was four weeks on, four weeks off, constantly. So that's half your half your life spent in Aberdeen on a on a steel box rattling around in the North Sea. So <laughs> and that takes a little bit of a a weird person to understand that. Not many people get up at sort of midnight and go to the top of their house, walk up, walk around and look out the windows for four hours. So yes, it does take a, a particular sort of person. Yeah. Along those same lines, what are the popular myths or misunderstandings that you hear about and combat each day? The ones that get on my nerve or get on my wick, as we would say in this country. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, there's hundreds. So ships stop at the night and they, do you guys all stop at night and go to bed? What happens to the ship? <laughs> that, that really annoys me. People think the ships are dirty, smelly things that are constantly polluting the sea and the atmosphere. That really, really does bug me. And also that coffee, tea, cocoa, and everything else in your shopping bag comes from Walmart or Asda or Tesco's rather than having been transported across oceans by a ship. People don't understand that, 90, well, in this country, 98% of the stuff that they, they buy is actually brought in by a ship. And they don't understand that how important the shipping industry is. Yeah, and I understand that. I, I work in transportation myself every day. So we're transporting gasoline and diesel and crude oil on truck and many of the same myths, right? The, you know, truck drivers are dirty, truck drivers are, you know, just destroying the roads and we should, you know, get rid of trucks, but 
nobody realizes that almost every single thing they bought or need came on that truck or most likely even came on that ship as well, right before the truck even picked it up. So no, I, I, I agree completely with you there. That that's very frustrating. Yeah. It's, you know, it's just that uh, I don't think people realize, you know, what the worth of transportation is. And I understand we are a, an environmentally friendly world we're living in now. We have to be, and it is the right way. I, I totally agree with a lot that we say about protecting the environment. But unfortunately, we have to get produce from A to B, B to C, C to D. And that means we've got to do it on some sort of transport. Now, the sooner they invent the Star Trek hyperspace button, you know, beam me up, Scotty job, that's great. But <laughs> until that's invented, we have to use other forms, which is going to use up the world's resources either in some form or another because even with hybrid electric cars and all the rest, that electricity has to be produced by something, whether it is coal, nuclear, gas, fuel, wind, whatever. So, you know, there is a cost for everything. And sometimes the cost, you know, has to be paid for and that's it. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely there. Yeah, we, we need to keep striving for improvements. If it's if it's wind, if it's something else, I mean, if we can keep getting better, fantastic. But to get there, there's, there's of course, uh, like you said, a price to pay to get there. So how about something that, you know, over your years, do you have a story or, or a situation that you might, you know, feel comfortable sharing with us as, as a, maybe a failure or even a, a great story of success that, that you've learned a lot from within your role or within your time in the industry? <laughs> success story. Are we talking about being at sea or are we talking about the oil and gas industry? Either or. I'm fine. With it. I'll leave that in completely up to you. I think my biggest success and failure came in the same time. I know you haven't got a lot of time, but hopefully it won't take too long with this. I was a new build master for the company, as it was then, called Golfmark, and we were building our new vessels, the CD09 class. That's the Highland Prince, the Enya, the North Promise class. And I was very lucky to be the master of the Enya, and it was a beautiful ship, came out the last, last of that class for us, and it was a great ship. And I felt, you know, professionally, being a master mariner and in command of the Enya with what I thought was a really good crew was like the pinnacle of my career. It's like, I suppose, if you were an aircraft pilot or, or, or a transatlantic sort of pilot, it would mean you're flying the Concorde. Well, I felt like that. I felt like I was flying. The Enya was like the Concorde right at the top, a really fantastic ship. And we were up working in one of the Tacker's old fields. It was a beautiful morning. And I thought second officer had come up. It was about 5.30 in the morning. It was quite ninny. It was one of those nice mornings, just a little bit of swell. But the, the sea was like flat calm. There was hardly any wind, two or three knots. Good day to launch the rescue boat and have a try, get the two cadets in there, give them a bit of training with the second officer. And unfortunately, it was one of those things that it didn't work out the way we planned. It, you know, the best played, played plans of man and men and mice. And unfortunately, the, the boat... We had a mishap, paint was released too early, the boat was, it paid out a bit too much line, then the boat capsized, we had a guy stuck under the boat, and, well, it was a nightmare. I was, I was had two cadets swimming down the side, looked like I was going to suck them into the propellers, and one of the, the second mate was stuck under the boat, and when we got the boat up, it looked like he, is, he had passed away, but we had such a good team on that ship. 
that. So we, we managed to get the cadets back on board. We got the guy breathing again, and he eventually fully recovered. So the 2D cadets. And it was, it was a good job after the disaster. But it made me feel then and there that we had one of the best crews on a boat you could possibly have. And everybody went through what they should have done. And I suppose if you say that was my biggest failure, but also my best success. So we turned a, a failure, which could have been a disaster, into a success in the end. So I suppose that would be the, the pinnacle of my career that other than when I was deep seeing with the RFA and doing the Falklands and things, that's about the best in the offshore industry. Well, yeah, that was sounds certainly like a very, very intense, very, you know, very intense moment. But those are the moments that really bring a crew together, right? Like you put some stress onto somebody to, to really see how they're going to act. You guys had to feel tighter of a team going forward from there. Oh, imagine. we definitely did, you know, and it, and it was a very, very frightening and frightening is the right word, I think, experience, not just yes. for the crew, but, yeah. you know, you know, that's when you learn what adrenaline is. And, you know, there was guys on there who, who did fantastically well. They did the exact right thing at the right time. And, you know, it, it, it was such a, it had a, such a, an effect on me that you know it will be there until my dying day that well we even had one of the ab's who who no longer goes to sea but he just he doesn't feel comfortable with it anymore you know it was one of those really really incidents that that could either make you or break you do you think that 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 incident maybe directed you towards your role today where you are checking these ships for compliance and and doing these these audits and inspections to make sure that just everything is 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 perfect as often as possible. I think it definitely helps. I think it's definitely toned me towards that area. I know when I go on board a ship to do an interview or I'm going to do an audit or if I'm going to do an inspection because there's been an incident, I will always go and look at the FRC. I will make sure that that boat is set up the best it can be and I will look at the bridge team. So, yes, it has a, had a profound effect on me. For the guys out there, when I come and do an audit or an inspection, not always the best, but for me, it makes me feel good when I've left the boat. And I think those guys know what they're doing. It's It definitely works. Yeah, you might not be the bearer of good news, I can imagine, right? You come on and and you get to get to inspect and nitpick and tell them what they did wrong and, and then take off. I had a similar job in compliance, and they always called me the seagull. Fly in, take a dump, and fly out. And, and, uh, <laughs> That's rather complimentary. Better than what they call me. Yeah. I'm not allowed to say what the, yeah. they call me on the radio. <laughs> but, you know, even if it's a tough spot to be in at the time, I'm, I'm sure they have the appreciation when the things are fixed and they're dialed in and, and going forward, they're that much safer. That There's got there's certainly got to be appreciation. I think the, nowadays there's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the job has changed over my time immensely. And there's still some guys who have got even more time at sea than I have, and the job has changed. Where you're not, you, know, you can't be a cowboy anymore. You can't do things what we used to do, sitting off rigs, sixty knots of wind, just trying to get the last few lifts off. So that doesn't happen anymore. We have to be safer, so that we make the job one safer for the guys, and two, we want people to come home at the end of a trip. We want them to get off the boat, had a reasonable trip, they feel safe. 
They're not frightened, and they go home and have a super league. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome, Lance. I I greatly appreciate your time. It's been extremely interesting and, and excited for me to talk to you and learn about what you do every day. Is there anything else that that you'd like to share with with Tidewater or the audience that they might be listening? No, it's just I think the I don't know a great deal about the 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 ins and outs of massive oil industry business. What's going up? What's going down? But I think the North Sea is is tending towards more work. So, you know, the North Sea is, is busy. We're going to get more work, and I think things are going to happen in the North Sea quite soon. And hopefully we can really crack on and get ourselves well-established in the North Sea, which would be good for Tidewater and all our sailors. Absolutely. All right, everybody, thank you very much. I hope you have a good week. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment, leave a comment, and rate us on iTunes or any of the different streaming networks that you may use to reach this material. Those reviews and comments and ratings really help us reach a greater audience. And in the future, we might read your review on the next show. So again, thank you for listening. We greatly appreciate your time. And here are the events on deck. Hey, everyone. Alex here with the events on deck for November. First of all, we had our best turnout ever for our latest happy hour in Houston with our panel discussion. So thanks to everyone who attended. And we hope to keep offering you guys value in the future. Be sure to listen here for any future happy hours. The events on deck for November include OGGN's second Denver happy hour on November 6th from 4 to 6 p.m. The cost of attendance is $20, a portion of which goes to local charities Safe House Denver and Oil Field Helping Hands. On November 12th at Minute Maid Stadium, IBM's Oil Field of Dreams, Data, Digitization, and Disruption. This event is free for all OGGN subscribers. OGGN's Mark LaCour will be doing a live podcast with ExxonMobil and his 2020 oil and gas predictions. On November 12th through 14th is Procurement Week in Sydney, Australia. Our travel partner, BCD Travel, will be sponsoring Day 2 of Procurement Week in Sydney. Day 2 has content focused on the construction, mining, and energy sectors as well as an indirect procurement leaders forum, which encompasses travel. Industry leaders will be discussing value-driven procurement approaches, evolving technologies, and the changing landscape. And drinks are on BCD at the end of the day. The Houston chapter API Energy Petroleum Club will be meeting on November 12th in Houston. Speaker Shane McElroy will be talking about the sustainability of electric fracturing. We have another free event on deck this month for our subscribers. The Top Coder Innovation Summit will be taking place on November 14th in Houston, Texas. This event is the premier innovation event for industry leaders. You'll have the opportunity to attend panels on innovation and emerging technologies and meet with the YPRO and Top Coder executive teams. Lastly, the Algeria Oil and Gas Summit is happening on November 19th through 21st this year. Alnaft will be sharing onshore and offshore updates for Africa's leading gas producer and opportunities for independent oil and gas companies. And don't forget, if you guys would like to receive these events each month via email, click Get Mark's Monthly Events email link in the show notes of any OGGN podcast. Hope you guys have a great month. Tune in next week for another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasoffshore.com.